Today on the podcast, guest Antoine Martel. He's a real estate investor, has over $14 million in real estate, and he does over 120 house flips a year. He's number one international best-selling author for his book, A Millennial's Guide to Investing in Cash-Flowing Rental Properties. He is rated top 20 real estate investor to watch in 2020 by Yahoo Finance. This week's riddle, why is Europe like a frying pan? Tune in to the end of the podcast and you'll get the answer. Don't forget to leave a five-star review for a chance to become the reviewer of the week. We appreciate it a lot. NicholasTally.com forward slash shop to get your merchandise. YouTube.com forward slash NicholasTally. New videos every Monday. As always, I'm the intern, you're the listener, and this is Nick. Hello and welcome. This is the Nicholas and Tally Show. I am your host, Nicholas Natali. Today we have a very special guest, Antoine Martel. Season's greetings. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Excited to be here. I am super stoked that you are here. We're going to kick it off with early life. You're from Canada. You moved on down to California. And your father, from everything I've seen, he seems like he too also shares a lot of like entrepreneurial experience, having had a, a sauce company where he sold sauce in different stores and also his fair share of involvement in real estate. Yep. How much of that do you how much of your own entrepreneurial spirit do you credit to your father? I think it would be my father and my mother. So both of them. So my dad, I kind of get my hustle. That that guy can hang with me. In terms of work ethic, holy shit. Like there's not many <laughs> people that can hang with me. Like me and him been up since it's 6 p.m. now. We've been up since 7. Um, I think I had like a one-hour break to eat lunch kind of thing. But me and him have been nonstop like – back and forth the entire day. And that's just today, right? And it's only six, then I'm going to do this podcast for an hour, and there's probably some other stuff that me and him are going to talk about after. So he's the one guy, yeah, that we go back and forth on, back and forth on in terms of like work ethic. Um, I definitely get that from him because I think growing up, when we moved from Canada to California, that's all he could do because now we had this house that we bought. Now we had this mortgage we had to pay and all this kind of stuff. And he needed to support us, the kids, to go to school and do all this kind of stuff. So he had to work his ass off and had to keep on working. He couldn't stop working. So mm -hmm. he was also traveling for work. So like I would only see him on the weekends the entire week. He would be gone growing up as a kid. So the work ethic was was definitely you know coming from him. And then the entrepreneurial spirit because now my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And then she would start these little side hustles or side businesses. And then that was how the sauce company got started and a bunch of other companies too. Like, um, she had like a catering service and like her, f she would make food like for 20 families in our community and sell the meals for like 30 or 40 bucks for like the entire family for like a dinner. And, uh, because my parents were really good, uh, at cooking and making these, these really, me these great meals that like would change them up every single week it was never like a repeat meal it was crazy and so seeing them do that the sauce company my mom had like a retail store so i had like a lot of entrepreneurial experience with her because my dad was was working all the time and i was like wow he's working all the time and my mom's here doing this so it's kind of you know both of them coupled together did you get to tag along in any of your mom's side hustles all of them. How, like you have your father's work ethic and then also like you're part of the logistics of running the business at such a young age. Yep. Uh, started when I was like seven years old. My mom had a retail store and I was running the cash register at seven years old. And it was wow. like me like, mom, I want to run it. Like, let me let me do it. Let me check them out. Let me. And then, you know, people would come and be like, oh, my God, he's so cute. And I was like dead serious, like, you know. Let, let me check you out and bag the stuff and give her give the people their bars or low carb bars that they were buying or whatever it was. So I was there stacking shelves, uh, doing the cash register. And this was, yeah, seven, eight years old um, that I was doing these things. And I think it was like on my summer break. I was there the whole freaking time, whether it was like playing around or actually working. It was, uh, yeah, that's I was there. And that, that was just the first business. Then the sauce company, I used to go around to Whole Foods and do like um, – show the product. So it was a sauce, right? So we would have like chicken or whatever and put the sauce on chicken and serve it out and tell people about the product. So that helped me with sales and learning about that kind of thing. Um, and then the, uh, the catering company, I didn't really have much involvement in because there was the kitchen was so small. There's only so many people you can have in there, yeah. but, um, but yeah, definitely just learning from all of those things. And she was, both my parents were very, 
uh, entrepreneurial spirited and knew that they should ride, you know, take that out of me, take that, take that to the next level within me, I guess what I'm trying to say, instead of like pushing it down, which I think a lot of parents would be like, Oh no, don't do that. That's too risky. Don't do this. Or I don't need your help. You're too young. Like make all these excuses. My parents were like, yeah, you okay. You want to come? All right, come on. Like I'll show you what to do and you got to do it and that kind of thing. So it really helped uh, drive in the entrepreneurial spirit in me because they were so, uh, they let me be involved in the process. Yeah. Like they sound like they're super encouraging of molding those skills. Like how often does a seven to nine year old get to sell to adults like that, that early on? Yep. That's wild. But then you get older and then you start having your own side hustles. I think my favorite one, honestly, is the e-cigarettes one, just because the story behind it is trying to like hop on the trend. But then you also have Amazon selling and then you sold bracelets out of all of your side hustles. Which do you think prepared you? Which one did you learn the most from? And then which one do you think prepared you for like your new venture in real estate? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. How did, first of all, how did you find out about the e-cigarettes thing? (laughs) You got to do your research, man. God damn. That's good. That's, that's good research there. Nobody's ever brought that up, but, um, yeah, I've tried a million things, man. As soon as I got a car, I, I mean, this was in high school. I started importing stuff from China, like fake hats, fake Converse, fake uh, Air Force One, like everything from this is like kind of when Alibaba was like they didn't even have AliExpress yet. Like Alibaba was not even like IPO like a couple years after that. So they weren't even IPO. They weren't public company yet. And I was buying this stuff and shipping it in. And I started just doing because like. Zoomies had these weed socks and kids at my high school were buying them for like 25 bucks and like 30 bucks. And I'm like, dude, you guys are paying this much money for socks. Like there's no, there's not even a logo on it. It's just like a weed leaf, right? Like 20 yeah. times. Yeah. I'm like, dude, I can, there must be a cheaper way to buy this thing. So I went to Alibaba. I started buying them for like four bucks a pair and I started selling them for like 10 or $15. And I had like, literally I was 16 or I was 15 and a half. Just got my like permit to drive 16 years old, got my, my mom's hand-me-down car and mm-hmm. I filled it. I ordered them from China and the DHL guy came and just like dropped all these boxes of these things. I, Cause I spent a couple hundred bucks buying these socks. Yeah. And then I started posting on my Instagram and stuff like, Hey, I got the weed socks for 15 bucks, whatever, whatever they look, they look legit and yeah. nobody could tell the difference. And I, my whole trunk was filled with these weed socks and I would just go, you know, walk around, pass them out, hand them out to people at school and stuff like that. Um, what learned me, what I learned the most, for, I mean, the e-cigarettes hopping on the bandwagon, I think was a great learning lesson. And, uh, I think that kind of helped me learn that lesson of don't follow the herd. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that was me like following the herd, right? That was when e-cigarettes first got started. Like Jewel was not around. This is like, when people used to have the big, like even before people had the, the big, fat the fat ones before that, there were like the small little sleek black ones yeah. that with the blue light on the end, I forgot. I think they were called blues. Um, mm-hmm. So they came out and they killed it. And I was like, dude, they're selling them for 50, 60 bucks. I can sell it for half that price and still make a good. So same thing, like yeah. just with the socks, except just a little bit different. Now e-cigarettes. Okay. I'm going to yeah. make a brand. I'll have my kids who are, you know, 18 years old or 17 year olds can't even, aren't even legally allowed to do it, but I'm going to have them go walk around to liquor stores and try to sell them to the liquor stores. And so I, or again, I did some little design work, ordered them from China, gave them out to all my friends. And then, you know, I, I hired them pretty much to go to these liquor stores and made a list of liquor stores. They had to go and try to sell the product to. It didn't work well because they were selling it instead of me. And so that was another big learning lesson too. Because at this time I was, <clears throat> I was like 17 years old. So it's a couple of years after the weed socks. Mm-hmm. And I was like, my dad was always like, no, Antoine, you need to sell it. You need to sell it. And I was very, I'm a introvert. So I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not selling it. No way in hell. Yeah. Like I'm just going to hire my friend, Caleb. He'll sell it for me. I no way in hell yeah. I'm, I'm going to these stores and I'm just gonna, that's way too scary for me. I wouldn't even cold call at this time. And, yeah. um, and then I, so I hired it, didn't work. And then, you know, my dad, my dad didn't say anything, but I was kind of in the back of my head like, shit, okay, he was, he was right. I, 
I needed to be the guy that was selling it. I knew about the product. I ordered it. I designed it. I knew all the flavors. I knew all the milligrams and all that kind of stuff that were in every single one. Mm -hmm. So that was a big learning point for me was not following the herd and then also to every business needs sales and you have to be passionate about your product and you can't have that fear behind your product. You have to kind of change your mindset. I think a lot of the times like about the product that you are selling, like, no, you're not like being annoying or you're not like, I hate getting in front of people's faces and like going and try to push a product into their face. So I kind of changed, you know, the way that I did business, not like, Hey, here's a product, buy it, buy it. Here's my, you know, make it about the money. It's more just about like why you need to buy this product instead of blue and, you know, convince them of that way. If they don't want it, they don't want it. But, you know, you have to feel right about your messaging and stuff like that. So a lot of takeaways from that business, which was, you know, probably like less than a year long. And I, I still, yeah, I think even just like a couple of years ago, I still have like a hundred or two hundred of the f- oh the packets, dude. Yeah. <laughs> now you got to go back to those stores and start <laughs> dishing them out Here for free. Yeah, that's funny. It's funny that you did weed socks because in my mind, it's like, like you could be the drug dealer or you could be the guy selling socks with drugs on them. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a whole nother. I know. Adventure. The well, the funniest thing is I don't smoke weed. And then I don't smoke cigarettes either. And I never smoked like the e-cigarettes. I think I tried like the non-nicotine ones. Yeah. But the, that's the funniest part. Like, Because if you go ask my friends like, oh, did Antoine do this, this, and this? They'd be like, yeah, he sold this and sold this. And to all of us, because he saw us buying and wasting all yeah. this money on this stupid stuff. And so I just saw the money make an opportunity. Like, okay, my friends are going and buying these blue things for 50 bucks and buying the, the repacks every week. Yeah. I'm like, dude, I can... I could do this. So I saw the money in it because the kids I grew up with, they were doing all that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, well, it was just like noticing the, noticing the trends. And that was a big trend at the time and just thought I would I could make some money off of it. Were you uh, – it sounds like you were just like innately passionate for finding good opportunities to create business rather than being passionate about the product itself. Do you think – do you think that also ties into how you do things now? Or are you just like fo- purely focused on business? I mean, I'm sure you also have interest in real estate as well, but you know what I mean? Where it's like not entirely the product, but it's also the process that you are passionate about. Yeah. And I think that that changed over time. So before it was just like, I was very short term, like, yeah. okay, what can I, what can I flip? What can I sell? Like not about building a brand or like mi- finessing the product to make it work the right way or um, tweaking the product or making product updates or um, doing that kind of thing was not real. I was just like, dude, I'm just going to buy it. I'm going to flip it. How much money can I make? How much money can I make yeah. now? Like with the businesses that I have, like the turnkey company, especially like, no, like that's, I would go to the end of the moon to, to keep that brand. Now the the brand overpowers the product. Now it's not like I would give a house for free so that somebody could, come back and buy more properties right before i would never have done that right like with the socks like oh yeah here socks are ripped here let me give you another pair no it's like dude you bought the socks like go away you know (laughs) if you want another pair you can buy another (laughs) pair of socks but yeah it was more and i kind of learned that through people along the way there's a couple of people that i've you know met over the the last five years since i've got into real estate that you know did business that way and i was just like wow that really and like i follow gary v a lot too so just like looking at the way that they've done business and just do it like more brand and product over the money. Cause the money's going to come. If you have the mm-hmm. best brand and the best product, that's why Martel Turnkey sold out right now. Cause yeah. you, dude, anybody can go and do what we're doing and have the product we're doing, but you won't be able to sell out like we will as you know, sell houses in one hour as, as soon as it gets on the site. That's because of brand and because of what we've done to our clients and help them over the last, you know, five, six years. So, um, so yeah, I think it's changed over time as I've learned more as a kid, it was just about the money. Now it's more about key. I'm thinking way more long-term. So what can I do for every single deal? What would be best for the brand? What's the right thing to do instead of how much money can I make? And it also seems like you are building trust every time you do focus on the brand rather than yeah. the moolah. Cause every time I've seen, I see your stuff coming out, it's like, so transparent in the information that it's providing that it's yeah. 
it's consistent, it's transparent, and that's why it builds trust. And I also think the fact that it's family run, like you and your dad and your siblings are also doing this all together, yep. I think that adds another layer of either validity or credibility that yeah. makes people so like eager to dive into yeah. Martel Turnkey. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, yeah, now it's my both my parents and my brother. So all four of us, I don't have any other siblings. So that's it's all four of us are in the in the business and working on it every single day. So yeah. You're definitely right. And there's there's a lot of things that we've done that cost us a boatload of money that we did for brand. And um we're gonna keep doing them. And yeah, like the content and stuff like that's a whole other ball game, but it runs along the same line, like uh tran- being transparent don't feel like you're oversharing or anything like that. 99% of people are not going to do anything with the information you're giving them anyways. The only thing it's going to do is for the other, for the, so the 1% are going to take the information and do something 99, the other 99% are gonna be like, wow, he's actually sharing this. Oh, okay. I'm going to click follow. Now I want to learn more about this kind of thing. Yeah. And as they learn more, they learn more, they see more of your posts and more of your content or your shows or whatever, then they're going to be like, wow, I really want to do business with this guy. Okay. I'm going to DM him now. And then that's how that's how we've been able to sell so many houses, get so many investors, buy so many apartment buildings. It's it's all because of that consistency and transparency over a long. Remember, it's been two years of posting every single day, right? Bef- yeah. To get to where I am, which is you know only seventy thousand followers and uh, on Instagram, right? I don't have seven hundred thousand. It's two years, and I only have seventy. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't even say only. I mean. I, it's. St- I mean, you still obviously want to continue to grow, but dude, you've had an incredible run, especially with the book, the podcast, and everything else that you're doing. But yeah. i i want to give I want to give some love to the one percenters that are going to do some good with the information. <laughs> yeah. Um. I want to dive into the the birth strategy and sure. walk through like the logistics of each step because. I mean, when I see Burr, I'm like, oh, man, straightforward as can be. And maybe it is, but at the same time, I got tons of questions. Sure. Um, So let's start out with just buying. We're both in California, which, I mean, (laughs) your story, which you do not have to repeat, of California being wildly too expensive to even want to invest in. Maybe someday, you know, maybe if I hit the lotto or something. Yep. But but, um, for finding a market out of state... What are some key metrics to be able to identify a good out-of-state market for real estate investing? So that's always the first question, right? So how do you choose the bloody market? And so I wrote a whole book about choosing the market or a couple chapters in the book about choosing the market and what to look for and stuff like that. We actually, I'm working on a website right now. It's called investor-list.com. That's going to make that question, the answer to that question way easier because it's going to be like, go to investor-list.com and you know, look at our list up. that we've created. And it's going to curate all the stuff I'm about to tell you. So population growth, job growth, major employers, the diversity of the workforce in those markets. Um, then other things you want to look for would be uh, like neighborhood specific stuff. So like crime rates, uh, you want like the median home income, the median home price, median rents to find the rent to value ratios, which is going to show you if a market's like cash flow versus appreci- appreciation. Um, and it's either one or the other. There's not really many markets that are right in between. If there are, then those markets are going to be very short lived. They're going to get too expensive pretty soon. So mm-hmm. um, with all that, there's a ton of different websites to go to BLS.gov, which is Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, the Census Bureau, uh, Forbes has information, Trulia has crime maps. So I'm trying to take all of those sites because that's the biggest part of why people give up. Mm-hmm. It's because that I'll say this and then they'll go on the four different websites. They'll go, dude, you go open BLS.gov and I'm confused when I open the website, right? It takes me time to figure out like, okay, what am I looking for? And what information, you know, it's like data mining. Like you need a data scientist to like look at what the hell they're trying to tell you, right? Yeah. Uh, And a lot of the data is old, like from 2017, 2015. So then you're like, oh, well, where do I get the current data? And then you realize, oh, the current data is not there for certain things. And then people are just people just throw their hands up and and stop. So we're we're trying to answer that question with just one succinct website. And I've seen uh, people do it in like the travel industry. Like, uh, what's the best place for me to vacation? And they click like Mm -hmm. 20 check boxes. 
that's what I'm trying to build. And so that'll be ready hopefully uh, in October or something like that. Dang, I'm going to look forward to that. That's for, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> when you find a good market that you're stoked about, um, do you fly out there first before you purchase any homes? So it depends. Like uh, we're like, for example, the last couple of days, I'm looking at Indianapolis a little bit more uh, just because I made some good connections with some people that are doing a lot of deals there. And like for that, if there's people that I trust already that I know are doing stuff in the market and are killing it, then yeah. there's no really need for me to fly out. As long as I can leverage that person and their brain and pay them for it in some way, like pay them, make them part of the deal or whatever the case may be. And I know that they've done 25 deals last month, right? Um, then I don't feel the need to fly out there. If this is something like brand new, like I don't know anything about the market, I kind of need to test the people or vet the people, then mm-hmm. I will go fly out there. Um, so it, it kind of depends on, on the market and the situation. I will tell you that for when I first started in Memphis, Tennessee, I bought like six houses, five houses before ever even flying out there. Dang. And that was just, yeah. And that was just because the trust had been built so well over the phone. And the first deal was a small deal. Like bought the house for 35 grand renovation was five grand and they Whoa. nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really small deal. And then like it was worth like 55 grand after, right? So all in for 40 grand worth 55-ish after. And so that deal, like I didn't fly out until I did five five deals because we were on such a roll. And I was like, I was like, you know, this speaks more than me going there. Like, what am I gonna do? Like have lunch with you and be okay, you're a great person. <laughs> like I'm already texting yeah. you 24-7 and on the phone with you and emails back and forth. Like I already know that inf- like what more can I get out? of being there. And, uh, we were just leveraging technology a lot too. Right. So like, um, Google street view, like, dude, I was like, it was essentially like I had driven around that neighborhood because I was just driving so much yeah. around on Google street view and doing as much as I possibly could could from here. And then on top of that, the first deal was amazing. Second deal when not amazing, but when according to plan, when according mm-hmm. to plan, when according to plan, I was like, dude, there's no reason for me to, to go out. Like there's momentum here. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. This is great. So, uh, but eventually I flew out because I wanted to just like, uh, build the rapport a little bit more and like, okay, we've done five. Like now it's time to do 500. Like what, what do we need to do to to do that kind of thing? Yeah. To bang, bang all these out. That's wild. So even from your first deal, you've been raising money in a sense to purchase these homes, or at least I would say you're a big proponent of raising money to end up investing in them. I got, I got little clue on how how does equity work if you partner with somebody <laughs> if i partner with my homie do we get f- both 50 percent of the house uh-huh. cash flow wise are we splitting the cash flow <laughs> what is that's it? a what beautiful is it? thing <laughs> that's a beautiful thing about raising money there's no guidebook you can do whatever the hell you want man um it all depends on the investor i'll tell you when i first started i had to give 50 percent of the deals away 50% of the equity in the deal away. So yeah. this is how it works, right? Like, let's say you have a an LLC, right? It's called Nicholas Properties LLC, right? It's and that name. property is going to go by, it's pretty good. <laughs> and that property is going to go by, that LLC is going to go by 123 Main Street, okay? You're going to buy it for 35 grand, renovate it for five grand, and, and ARV is after a pair of values, 55,000 bucks after, okay? Yeah. So your LLC is going to go buy it. But then you're like, Nicholas is late at night in his bedroom and he's he's like, I don't have 40 grand though. What am I going to do? So you call your homie and mm-hmm. and then you call him and you're like, hey, I need 40 grand for this deal. We're going to buy it, renovate it, and it's worth 55 grand after. Let's do this. Let's buy the property, renovate it, rent it out, and then we can refinance it or we can hold it cash and we'll split the cash flows or profits. Mm-hmm. I even might be able to find a buyer or list it on the market as a turnkey rental and try to sell it. What yeah. do you think about that? You Then you send him a spreadsheet of some numbers that you've crunched on the return and what he can expect. And then he's like, all right, let's do it. And then he's going to sign a joint venture agreement with his personal name or his LLC with your LLC that's buying it. So now you're buying the property. He's investing in your LLC. Mm-hmm. That LLC is going to buy the property, renovate it, rent it out, be on title. So you have full control. And he's just doing some joint venture agreements, not like a... It's a legal document, but it's not like published anywhere like a deed or or a yeah. promissory note or anything like that. 
So um, that's how that's how we did it. And that's how I started because uh, a lot of people didn't trust me. I only had done a couple deals. And so yeah. that's how I had to start doing it. But you can do it any way you want. That's just how how we did it when we first started because it was uh, it was just I just want to be as simple as freaking possible yeah. for people to invest in it. Yeah. And that's how I hope it is, too. That answers one of my questions a little bit with purchasing with an LLC. So when I think of like taxis in New York, this is how I think they do it. And I want to know if this is how you do it with real estate as well. Yeah. I'm pretty sure each taxi car is its own LLC in case it like crashes into somebody. So if they were get to get sued mm-hmm. or something, yep. only that one taxi car is liable. Yep. Do you do the same thing with homes? Are you pumping out LLCs nonstop? Yeah. So we, we do. We used to do it a lot more than we do now because we have so many projects. Like, let's see, 49 projects right now. So I'm wow. not going to go and make 49 LLCs. Like, that's a little ridiculous. So it's a, you could, you could do it and you'd be the most protected ever, right? Yeah. But, the, in reality, most people do not end up doing that. They they normally just put them in bundles. So like you'll go make 10 LLCs and like each LLC, you'll try to just divvy it up. Like this LLC has four houses, this has five, this has three. And so that that's how we do it. And then also on top of that, we get like a general liability insurance policy mm-hmm. for the entire portfolio, which is super affordable. And it it's like protects you up to a million dollars per incident. So like even if I had like a hundred taxis all under one LLC, I can go and get this kind of like general liability insurance policy on that LLC. So that if anything, if somebody does go and hit somebody and it costs, you know, less than a million bucks, then okay, I can go to the insurance policy instead of instead of getting sued at the LLC because my insurance policy is gonna just cover it. Cover but that. if you're hitting somebody, it might be a little bit more than <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's good to know. Now I yeah. have less of a fear somebody trips on a property if I, <laughs> if I get one. Yeah. What would you say constitutes a good deal? So like when I hear I got I got deals. I got I got ten deals last month. What's a deal? Yeah. Is it a certain metric that's hit in cash flow or is it like what numbers can I crunch to know like this is a good investment? This is a good yeah. property. Yeah, so there's two different types of projects, right? So like a short-term project. So like, let's just say there's a fix and flip and a long-term hold. Oh, I guess it would be... Okay, well, let's just say there is two. So fix and flip, right? And then a long-term hold. So yeah. for the fix and flips, um, we try to get like um, anything over like a 15 to 20% return would kind of be a good return for a fix and flip project. So anything with like a 15 to 20% margin... Um, and let's just say the project took a year, right? So, uh, so that we don't get in the whole time yeah. scenario. So anything with like a 15 to 20% return is something that I look for, or even just as simple as like a 15% margin or 20% margin. There's a lot of guys out there that are trying to find these like 30% margin deals, or I'm sure you've heard of like, uh, these people that want to be like 70% all in. Like, yeah. so you buy a house for 50 you put 20 grand in renovation and it's worth like a hundred grand. So they have like $30,000 spread or a 30% margin. Um, I have, please tell me if you have those deals because I've never (laughs) seen 250 deals later. I've never seen one. And you know, we're not winning every, I'm not overpaying because I'm not winning every single house. I, I make an offer on. So something's, something's not right. Um, and I think it, it, so that's what I would look for. I would look for anything from 15 to 20% on the short term flips, at least to have some margin and some spread in there. And then I would also, for the long-term hold, it can be a little bit different. Um, if you're buying something turnkey, um, mm. like a return, like a cash-on-cash cash return, I would look for would it be like anything from 10 to 15% cash-on-cash cash return is something that I would look for. Um, anything below 10%, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. Um, so 10% is kind of the magic number for the long-term cash flow. If it's going to be super safe and it's like a new construction and the tenant has a, you know, guaranteed lease in place for five years and then it's 8% return, like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe we're going to do this kind of thing. But for long-term personally, I look for, yeah, anything 10% or higher and then short-term fix and flips 15 to 20%. Closer to 15 is like a more realistic thing 
uh, yeah. a realistic number with the way the market is right now. Nice. Well, that's perfect, very practical information. So I'm happy <laughs> to have those numbers in my noggin. Good. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I hate to interrupt the podcast. I know you're taking in some great information, but I got to tell you something. If you like what we're doing here, head on over to nicholasnatalie.com forward slash shop. Get yourself some sick merch, sweatshirt, t-shirt, even a sticker. Anything helps. And it's pretty cool, to be honest. We're trying to help as many people possible here live more fulfilling lives. So please share this with a friend. Screenshot it. Post it on your Instagrams, your, your tweets, the Twitters. Just share it. We appreciate you, and I am going to let you get back to the interview now. Live updates from Hurricane Sally coming soon. But I may be getting ahead of myself here because before you can buy, you got to have a team. You got to have, got to have your people in place. Yep. What's been, in your experience, like the best team you've put together? Yeah. So it depends. Um, we have two, so we're in two markets right now: Memphis, Tennessee, and Cleveland, Ohio. And team building is when you're in out of state investing is the number one most important thing that you need to do before doing anything. So research the markets on investor-list.com. Then once you choose a market, now it's time to build a team. So the way that I would recommend doing it for somebody new is just go and find and cold call property management companies in the market. Mm -hmm. Those people are going to have the most connections um, to, for example, like lenders, contractors, escrow companies, inspectors, appraisers, all those kinds of people that you're going to need. Those property management companies, many of them are also required to have agents on staff to do their leasing and stuff like that. So many of them are like double dipping as a property, working at the property management company, doing leasing mm -hmm. and also like being realtors and helping people invest, right? Um, so those are the kind of people that you want to look for and look for somebody who has been in the, in the business for, you know, 10 plus years, has experience, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I would look for. And that's how I was able to f build my teams in, in these markets pretty quickly, pretty quickly being like one to three months. Um, that's really the good. first, yeah, the first team took me a lot longer cause I was cold calling realtors. If I, if I cut that realtors are worthless. So if you cut out the realtors, then, uh, <laughs> pour one out for all the realtors out there right now. <laughs> there's so, there's so many of them, man. There's like everybody and their mom is on like, is a realtor. So, uh, you want to find, I use the property management company as the hub. And then yeah. off of that, you, you can, and you need to find some really good realtors, but I found them going through the property manager is a better way than reaching out to the realtors uh, directly. Mm. Yeah, that's that's good to know. The The property management seems like if you don't have them and you're out here, what yeah. do you got? What do you yeah. really have? You got a realtor, maybe you have a friend, you know? Yeah. Maybe you have an email partner that you can yeah. hang out yeah, with. Yeah, I know. It's, yeah, it's the hardest thing to find, too. And that's the thing, too, like why Martel Turnkey hasn't expanded into so many markets. It's like finding that right team on the ground because it all helps with the experience for our client too so like we need to make sure their onboarding is on point like their leasing is on point they're able to fill the vacancies quick like mm -hmm. um able to handle the evictions all this kind of stuff that that you need people on the ground for like it uh it's very difficult to find a really good property management company we've even reached out to our current property management companies and asked them if they want to go to new markets that's wow. how much that's how difficult it is to find great property management companies in these markets. And we're literally like, I'm like, I'll pay you guys to go here. Like, yeah. please, you know, <laughs> please help us expand. Come on. Help us for real. Um, in regards to like fees or percentage wise, if a property management company is hooking you up, what's a, what's typical? Yeah. So typical is 8%. Uh, sorry. Typical is 10%. Um, for these Midwestern markets, it's 10%. If you can find 8%, um, unless they're like a big company or they have some like competitive edge, like they're all like online or something like that. Like uh, there's a company, Great, Great Jones, that's online and stuff. So um, they charge 8%, but normally it's 10%, uh, 8 to 10%, but most likely 10%. Mm, good to know. And as far as the rehab goes, are you telling these guys, hey, I got five grand what can you do? Or is it, Hey, this is everything we need to do and we have to do it for five grand. <laughs> so, man, that's a, so for the turnkey business is a little bit harder because we, again, are trying to like give our clients a good experience, right? So yeah. all the major systems, we want them to be in good shape. Like renovation has to look like this. 
bathroom needs to look like this kitchen needs to look this way right uh and also a lot of times like the same colorway over and over so a lot of the times we'll give we'll like make an offer get a house under contract and then what i'll do is i'll send out my contractor and be like hey can you go out to this property you know our budget is 20k fyi uh can you do the renovation for this number um for for everything we need for this number um sometimes we'll do that um other times we just like literally blindly send them out take their number and then go back to the seller and be like hey our rehab had came back at this like Mm -hmm. you need to drop your price down to this or else we can't we have no deal and so it kind of works both ways because sometimes you'll do that and like the rehab bid will come in i'm just worried sometimes when i tell the contractor a number that they're going to do whatever to get to it if it's yeah and they're going to cut out stuff when i'm doing turnkey you can't really do that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um and it's hard to relay that to the contractor so that's what we've kind of positioned to is kind of just like hey here's a lock we have this under contract here's the lock box go through and let us know your number like because then he's happy too he doesn't feel pressed to like get his number to where it needs to be it's kind of it's a makes it way easier for him because he feels like he can like handle do everything that we have already asked him to um, for the price that we want. And that's something else, too, that we've been doing with a lot of our contractors. Like we have like a, I don't know what you would really call it in like professional terms, but um, really like everything that we need done to almost every single property, unless it's in amazing condition. So, for example, like clean and paint the exterior, new house mm-hmm. numbers, new mailbox, um, new doors. Like if any, like if anything is wrong with the door, like replace it, any kind of crack or anything like that. And so like a whole big list, like always interior paint, always new flooring and always new flooring matching. Right. Yeah. So a normal investor that's doing a burr, like you don't even need to do that kind of stuff, but we're trying to sell a product that's gonna, that won't have those recurring expenses. So we kind of have to do that. And so, what we've been doing with contractors literally like sharing with them a big word document of all of these different things that they need to follow on every single rehab project to keep it all succinct. And it streamlines the process. Yep. Yeah. I feel like, you know, it's, it's establishing more of a expectation control. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. It makes it way, it makes it way easier. Cause now, cause we set we say it once and then that's it. Like they don't need to ask us again. Like, Oh, do you want me to do this? Like, I don't ever want to hear that question. Like, you should know from the document I gave you, like, do should it. you be doing it? Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time, it's do it. When you were cold calling people, how did your, uh, did you get over the introvert portion of yourself? Oh, how man, have I had you, to, How man. have you changed? Yeah. I had to, man. Um, I think that going to college uh, kind of helped me with that. I mean, I, I, like, hated public speaking, hated talking to people, and then kind of in college, it's like, if you want to graduate, you gotta you gotta <laughs> go up there. Speeches. <laughs> you gotta go up there and present. And I'm like, well, I'm not graduating. Um, <laughs> so I think getting up on stage, like in front of classmates and stuff like that, and going through that entrepreneurship program, kind of like got that out of me because you kind of needed to to then get your grade. And I would kind of like, yeah, I was kind of a B student, but I would just kind of do whatever it took to get it done. And then, um, and so I kind of like just growing up, kind of taught me that so that's what took me from what was i 15 years old right all the way up to like 20 19 or 20 years old so it took me a couple years to get out of that that funk and then i think also one of the biggest things was just like putting in the time and effort to learn everything about real estate so like it took me two years before doing my first deal in real estate and those those two years i was like trying everything and listening to podcasts every single day about how this person started this person started and then i kind of like f- would go to these meetups and i'm like what the hell like i'm t- 19 years old i know more than like this guy and he's 60 like how does Ooh, yeah. how is that possible and he's been in it for 10 or 20 years and then you know you start talking to people and uh cuz i would go on like these coffee meetings in la um, just try to like network and stuff like that while I was in college. Cause I'm, I was fine with one-on-one stuff. It was kind of like cold calling or doing stuff that was kind of like out of my comfort zone. Yeah. It was weird, but one-on-one in person for some reason was fine. And then I would go to these things and people were like, wow, you're 19. You already know all this stuff like blah, blah. And I'm like, <laughs> oh shit. Okay. I guess I, I guess <laughs> I do know what I'm talking about. And then I would go and cold call these agents and uh, I kind of just had my confidence up from like putting in the two years of time 
into learning it, going to all those networking events and and meeting people face to face. And then I kind of felt like, holy, wow, okay, I do know I'm onto something here. Like I do have, I put in the work and the knowledge. Whereas if I was cold calling and I had like, I was one month in, you know, I wouldn't feel all that hot about, about doing it because I would be shy or didn't know how to answer certain questions. Like I knew every single thing about what anything that people could say, I knew I had an answer for it. And so that made me feel more comfortable uh, because I had cleared up the unknown. And I guess that's the scariest part of going up on stage or cold calling is like, what if they say this, you know, Um, (laughs) are you going to hang up? So, but I knew every single question and knew how to answer everything. So that made me feel comfortable. I don't know. Bye. Just like every time. (laughs) Exactly. I know. Exactly. Well, I used to like, I was trying to get my brother into it. I think at that time, like cold calling, like here, call these 50 people. He's like, what if, what if they ask me a question? I don't know how to answer. I'm like, just hang up. (laughs) Like, it doesn't matter. You're never going to talk to them again, dude. It doesn't matter, dude. Pull the plug Uh, every time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I can't do it. But yeah, it is, it is hard to get out of that, that funk for sure. I mean, building confidence and knowledge is always a good thing. What was your yeah. number one resource? How did you, uh, was it the, was it the meetups or was it, um, like, was there one specific podcast or was it yeah, chatting it was on a- bigger pockets? That's, I feel like that's your, your favorite thing is to connect with other investors on bigger pockets. Wow. You did. I, yeah, I have like three band bigger pockets accounts. So I did, I did a lot of bigger pockets stuff back in the day. Um, so bigger pockets, bigger pockets podcast. Uh, and then probably the one-on-one networking because I was like able to pinpoint people that I didn't really understand what they were doing or how they did something mm-hmm. like, oh, this guy's like on his bigger pockets profile, like LA and living in LA, but investing in Memphis, Tennessee. And I have like, I, whatever, I have like five single family homes or whatever that are cash flowing that I bird. And I'm like, what the, how did he do that? <laughs> yeah. And so then I would be like, Hey, I'm a, I go to LA, I go to LMU, Loyola Marymount University down the street. I'm a college student. I want to get into investing. Like, do you mind if I take you out to coffee sometime? We can just, you know, for 20 minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, buddy. And then that's kind of how I would Sport. take take the podcast information uh, that I was learning. And then like I would, first of all, I knew like a lot from just mm-hmm. listening to the podcast and then go into this meeting and then ask the right, I knew like the right questions to ask because I had put in all the time of like learning how, 500 people had already got started so i kind of knew the gist of it but it was kind of like but how how long did it take you like i was asking my own questions instead of like just listening to podcasts yeah it's more tangible when it's like somebody's actually doing it right in front of you yep that's really nice what do you what would you say to all the w2ers out there that have between 25 and fifty thousand saved up to invest right now what what would be a good good first step for them yeah. So my recommendation for those people with W2 last couple of years, a uh, good credit score, anything from like 50,000 bucks or less, mm-hmm. 20 to 50 grand, really you can't do much with less than 20 grand. So 20 to 50,000 bucks, it would be to buy turnkey rentals. Um, I'm not saying that because I have a turnkey company. That's literally, I think, just the only place that you can put your money. You can either keep saving up to like... 70, 80, 90, 100K, and you can like do your first burr project or flip out of state, mm-hmm. uh, pretty cheap flip, but like more like a burr. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do that with a little bit more cash. But yeah, with 20 to 50,000 bucks, I would recommend just buying a turnkey rental property. Uh, it's going to be the lowest risk, especially with a full time job. You'll be able to leverage your W 2 now um, and get some cash flow coming in. You'll have at least a team on the ground. You'll get to know what it feels like to be an out-of-state investor without taking all the risk. And then the biggest thing is like the the bank is going to finance 80% of your deal, right? So yeah. whereas if you're going to go do your burr, like, okay, now you're taking a risk that you like know how to run comps and that you know what the property is going to be worth once it's done and all those kinds of risks that come with doing a burr project, which a lot of people don't talk about. Um, so I think it's probably the, the safest way. Um, just find a good turnkey company or you can come talk to us, Martel Turnkey, and we can help you out with that. What are some of those risks that people don't think about with those burr projects that turn into scaries? Yeah, man. So a couple of things, contractors, everybody can run numbers, right? You can just watch a bunch of YouTube videos to figure out how to run numbers. Uh, The issue is with contractors staying on budget and doing the renovation in the right way that you want it. Yeah. Right. And then the... The, the second biggest risk is 
let's say you have a good contractor that's been fully vetted or whatever, done a hundred projects for this property management company or realtor that you're connected with. Okay, great. You're good then. But then now the issue is the appraiser and the refinancing. First of all, a lot of people underestimate the time that it takes to do the refinance and they underestimate, they don't even know what a seasoning period is, for example. So seasoning period is, let's say you buy the house, um, you buy the house, you renovate it, you rent it out. So everything's done within the first month. Banks have what's called seasoning periods, which means you can't refinance that property until you've been on title for six to 12 months. Mm -hmm. So you have to be legit an owner of that property for six to 12 months before you can even pull a dollar out. So yeah. let's say you had a hundred grand, you bought a house for 60, put 20 grand in renovation or 30 grand in renovation. That money's sitting there for six months, 12 months, and then let's say you're hoping it's worth like a hundred thousand bucks or a hundred and ten after. What if the appraisal comes back at eighty because you didn't put a HVAC or you skipped over that part and all the comps had HVACs or garages or driveways, mm -hmm. like the weird little stuff that you wouldn't even think about, and all those things just you know value down five k, value down five k, value down five k, yeah. and you know after doing like two hundred homes in Memphis and Cleveland. The appraiser is just like you have to find the right lender who has the right appraiser for that market to make sure that that bloody thing appraises because we've had houses that um, and we see it all the time. That's that's why that's like the biggest risk to me because like 10 percent of the appraisers appraisals we get back are horrible, like absolutely horrible. And um, like they'll they'll we bought the house for like 30 grand renovated for like 40 grand. And so we think it's worth like 90 and the appraisal yeah. will come back at 45,000. And we're oh. like, what is this person smoking? And like, yeah. uh, I've literally filed complaints with the board of appraisers and Cleveland. I don't know what they're called, but I've literally f done formal written complaints uh, to some of these appraisers that just have no clue what, what they're doing. Um, so that, that's the biggest risk that, um, and the thing is there's no real, good way or like if this is your only project and you know you're only yeah. one house deep like there's no way to get around it like you're just gonna have to choose a lender and and hope for the best that the that the appraisal comes back good you know so if an appraiser is terrible like you're saying you can't you can't double down you can't pull in another no. appraiser and be like hey this guy botched it hard can you can no. you look at this the lender is the only one that can choose the appraiser so the lender is gonna and you can try to what's called rebuttal it so first yeah. of all, like, just put yourself in, like, you have a hundred grand, you're in your first deal, right? You spent all your money on this one deal. Oh, yeah. You bought a cash, renovated a cash. Now you're just waiting on this appraisal to come back yeah. at a hundred K or whatever. And it comes back at 60. The bank's going to turn to you. This is the first deal the bank's ever done with you. They don't know you from a bag of rocks. Yeah. They're going to be like, Hey buddy, the appraisal came back at 60. What do you want to do? And you're like, no, this is not right. Yeah. want to submit a rebuttal and then they're like okay we'll fill out this form then submit yeah. a rebuttal you submit the rebuttal the rebuttal it works four percent of the time like two percent of the time nobody ever looks at it or what <laughs> no just the appraiser just like eh no you're wrong like they're just yeah. like no you're wrong like uh, they're they're never gonna go from like oh yeah he was right it's not 60 a it's 100 <laughs> like they'll look like the stupidest yeah. person ever so that never happens um the only other thing that you're able to do is sometimes order a second appraisal. Um, most banks, like 90% of banks will not let you do that. They just only have like the rebuttal process and then that's it. If rebuttal comes back, like you're dead, like the deal's dead. You have to literally cancel everything, go turn. And remember, you've already waited six to 12 months to get to this damn point. Yeah. Now you have to go turn around and find another lender and hope for the best and pay another five, 600 bucks for another appraisal. Submit all your docs. So I've heard a lot of horror stories. That's why a lot of people have gone from the doing it themselves to actually buying turnkey because they're like, dude, I'm just going to buy turnkey. At least I know the thing will appraise. And if it doesn't appraise, I can turn away and back out and I no risk to me. Right. So they're not stuck with the deal. Dang, that's tough, man. That is yeah, a tough, tough spot to get put into. I know. Yeah. And you see all this. The thing is, you see all the stuff online like. Burr, I burred my way to a billion dollars. And it's like, yeah. you got, you must have got <laughs> lucky with those damn, or you really know what you're doing in terms of comps. But I mean, we know what we're really doing in terms of comps because we've, we're only investing in a couple zip codes. So I literally have the comps. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing. And they're my houses that I have the appraisal reports for. 
And so when I do my rebuttals, I literally send an appraisal report for the property that sold a month ago yeah. down the street. And they still are like, no, that's not right. So that that's a thing. So we know what we're doing and we still have that issue. Just imagine if this is your first deal in your first market, you know, no appraiser knows you and then no lender knows you as well. It, uh, it can be very, uh, very challenging. Yikes. Let's, let's do talk about some of the people that are saying I bird my way to a million dollars. All of, I feel like it all rides on the refinancing kind of what we're already saying, yep. but I don't, I don't get how they take one refinance and put it into the other. Like I think you okay. can, you can cash out and then throw that extra money down onto the next house, mm-hmm. but then you're going to do it again and then you're going to cash out and do it on the next house. Yep. Is there any point where cash flow gets tough or is that just how they keep doing it? Keep scaling. That's how they keep doing it. Cause at the, at the end, the more doors, the better and the more protected and insulated you are. Mm. So even if your cash flow is lower per door, like for example, for like apartments, like a hundred to 150 bucks a month in net cash flow per door is like pretty, it's pretty good. Like it's safe. Like 150 bucks is, is a good number per door for cash flow for an apartment. And so, you can you can hold it cash and you'll be making 300 bucks a door but you can either like keep your 10 or 20 unit apartment building making 2 to 300 bucks a door and wow you're like really safe and stuff but now you don't have the capital to keep going right or you can you can refinance it take the 150 bucks a door and but now you can have 100 units instead of 30 units or 20 units right so you're just able to to grow your portfolio much faster. And I'd rather have a hundred doors at a hundred bucks a month that 20 at yeah, 200 or 300 bucks. Cause I'm just, I have, it's way safer and I have it spread out over time. Also like all the, the tax benefits of having more doors and more properties and all the accelerated depreciation, it gets into all the, the other stuff that you can save and write off because you have more and more doors, you know? So let's talk about the safe growth then. Having so having more doors means you're safer. Like if I wanted to grow my portfolio over the next five years, what would be the safest way to do that? Do you have does this person or you have W two income? Yes. Do they have okay, so they have W two income uh and a good credit score? Great credit score, the best around. All right, good. So do they like their job and they want to keep doing it? No, they hate it. Oh god. And yeah. how much money does this person have saved up in cash? Between twenty five and fifty k. Oof. Yeah. yeah. So that that's a challenge. I mean, the safest way to grow a portfolio, and what I normally recommend for people who have the W two. So it's important to, to understand the <laughs> privilege of having a W two job, especially for the last couple of years where you have a good tax return. The banks mm-hmm. love your ass. Mm-hmm. So they're they're ready to throw money at you left and right, right? Yeah. So you need to take advantage of those Fannie Mae loans that the bank is willing to offer you and fund 80% of your deal. Okay. So normally what I recommend for people with that good W2 that good W2, you may hate the job, I know, and you want to get out of it, but you have some money saved up, good credit score is to start buying rental properties uh out of state with the turnkey company is best. You can try to do it yourself, but with a limited amount of capital, uh, it could get a little hairy. Um, like for example, like buying turnkey, you already know what's been done to it. A lot of the major systems have been taken care of tenant in place, right? So you're putting, let's say you buy a turnkey for 80 grand, you put 20% down, which is like 16,000, a couple thousand bucks in closing costs, right? So you're all in for like 19, $20,000. Okay. Yeah. But that's with like no major big ticket items coming in the next one year, two years, three years, right? Yeah. You can go buy the same house next door for like sixty grand on mm-hmm. Zillow, um, mm-hmm. right? On Zillow, just listed by some realtor, right? The house is vacant, maybe needs a little bit of work. So you you do the numbers for that. This is what I just don't understand with people. So you can do the numbers <laughs> for that, and then you you put you're getting a loan for eighty percent, right? So you put twenty percent down. That's twelve thousand right. bucks, okay? right? Then, then let's see the house needs like five grand to clean up. So you're at 17,000. So you only save yourself 2000 bucks, right? Or $3,000, let's say versus going and buying a turnkey rental, but you got a great deal and you have this equity in this property. Okay. That's great. But 
then what happens in the first or second year when the roof needs replaced or the HVAC needs replaced? Now, all those little things add up and you mm-hmm. already with a limited amount of capital, like that's just slowing you down on going out and acquiring more properties, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, you, one of your key words was, was safe. So, um, the way that I would do it is I would maximize my W2 go mm-hmm. maximize the Fannie Mae loans that you have available, which is 10 loans. Um, so I would max that out. And then at that point, you're going to be making some pretty good cash flow per month. Um, like our properties cash flow like 250 to 300 bucks a door. So like 2,500 or three grand a month, just yeah. in passive cash flow from those 10 properties. Now you have like, okay, do I want to leave my job or do I want to stay at my job and use my paycheck to pay down some of these properties? Because mm-hmm. if you paid off all of them, they would be making five, six hundred bucks a month. Yeah. So you can be making five, six thousand dollars per month every single month if you were to then go and pay off those properties, which would take you like six more years or something to to go and do that. But that that's what my recommendation would be. And we've helped a lot of people do that too. And where they've uh now they're okay, should I stay in my W two or should I leave it? And it's pretty crazy to to see people actually go ahead and take action on it. It's pretty amazing. If you purchase a turnkey property, you can can you refinance on it to scale to the next turnkey property? Yeah, so good question. So you can most of our properties again sell for their appraised value. So you buy a property for 80 grand, it's worth 80 grand. Like the market value is 80,000 bucks. So you don't have that equity um so that would be but like people most people who have the W2 like are saving from their yeah. W2 job. And then they're using that capital to then buy the next one, buy the next one. Cause that's the question I get a lot. Okay. I have 50 grand. I buy two, three houses and I'm making a thousand bucks a month, but then what? And I'm like, well, you need to have, this is like a passive strategy, right? This isn't like a money. You said, you know, you said safe, not you, yeah, but yeah. like the investor In said, general, oh, I want yeah. something safe and stuff. Like if you want something that's high risk, like I can, I can show you something that's going to have amazing returns on, I can show you it on paper, but they call me in six months when the appraiser goes through and let me know if it appraises because yeah. there's nothing I can guarantee to do it. So that's the thing. Like um, most people, so to answer your question, most people are not able to refinance the turnkey properties unless they've owned it for like a year or two years um, until the property value has gone up a significant amount and then they're able to. So I think there's a, a couple of our clients that bought back in like 2017. Mm-hmm. 2018 and they just refinanced their properties and like i was i was like blown away like they're like yeah i bought it for mm-hmm. from you guys for like 70 grand and it's worth 90 now or 80 whoa now. Like, that's awesome yeah and i was like holy jesus <laughs> and i'm like who would you do your ref like i got their lenders information yeah. and all this kind of stuff because yeah i was i was blown away too by uh buy it like the property in the, especially in the zip codes we're in because we're doing so much volume in the zip codes yeah. we've actually like helped increase the values a lot wow that's like, actually insane to think about like yeah. you alone helped <laughs> increase the value of an entire oh, neighborhood dude there's a zip code in in cleveland ohio we used to we made a graph because of how high wow. the values got we um we used to sell stuff there for seventy five thousand bucks 12 months ago Mm-hmm. about a year or let, let's say the beginning of 2019 we sold stuff there for seventy five thousand dollars okay now and rents were like 850 or 900 now a year and a half later almost two years later we're selling stuff for ninety five thousand dollars rents are 950 minimum um wow. and it's crazy like there's no like big industry that's gone it's just like we've done a lot of cleaning up in that neighborhood and it's just slowly increased every time, every time we'd sell a house, we kind of just push it a little bit higher, push it a little bit higher. And, uh, yeah, that's our biggest zip code. And we've had the most control over that zip code than anybody else. But, um, and that's why we're able to have, uh, to kind of push it up because we have so many comps that just keep going higher and higher and higher. Dang wild. Who would have thought that would have been like a, almost like this unforeseen side effect of real estate investing, just bringing up the entire value of an entire zip code. I know. Yeah, it's crazy. And now we're like, okay, what's going to happen when we're like, it gets to it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like at what point does it, cause we're selling them at 95 K now or yeah. 90, 95 K now. And then what's going to happen when like we keep increasing, like you, we can only sell like the max you can sell a nine fifty rent house for is like around 95. Yeah. Right. Sometimes, sometimes a hundred because the 1% rule and the returns don't look all that great. 
but 100 is like the max and we're like very close to that so we're like teetering uh oh what are we gonna do <laughs> what are we gonna do when we cross that line or other investors come in looking for a lower return etc and they're they're fine with that so that's kind of what we've been playing with as well which is kind of funny what a great problem to have <laughs> i know right okay so here's another thing i got a question on you're still flipping stuff but you have buy and holds for a long time are you flipping to get capital to buy more buy and hold rental properties yeah so we the turnkey company would be our flipping right so anything that is not sold on the turnkey company we do a cash out refinance if we've been on title for six months 12 months right yeah it hasn't happened yet we've like had a great success with selling the properties where we haven't had to like enact that strategy. But like, even when we're analyzing deals still to this day, it's like we, uh, our acquisitions guys have like a couple exit strategies. So one of them is sell it turnkey. Do the numbers make sense? Profit makes sense. Margin makes sense. Uh, second one is, um, do a refinance and hold it in house. And does that make us a 15% return on our money with our lender? And so they're still doing that every, we haven't had to do that, but, um, that's kind of how it works. And so when we sell a turnkey, we obviously make a profit and then we've been using that profit to go out and either buy more turnkey rentals to sell. Um, so like more rehab projects, more fix and flips. And then if there's any excess capital, then we've been going out and partnering up with people to buy apartment buildings. So last year we bought close to a hundred units. I think it's 89 units, um, all last year. And uh, first couple of buildings we bought with our own capital. And then we slowly started to bring in investors because the deals kind of just <clears throat> came in, came through the woodwork. And uh, we didn't have enough money to be able to do them ourselves. So we started bringing in people to, to fund those deals with us now. Dang. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like you got to unlock all the trial and error paid off 100%. That's oh, sure. yeah. Oh, man. That's <laughs> I mean, crazy. Yeah, there's definitely hard work behind your eyes right now. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's just it. I mean, even like, that's just one thing. I mean, then this year in January, we started a wholesaling company and we're doing about five, 10 deals a month already this year. So then the other thing with the, the, I'll just go on a tangent. Now. Yeah, let's get it. But, uh, with the whole, with the turnkey company, I was like, all right, we're doing last year. We did 85 houses this year. We want to do a 120. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's going to happen in two years when I want to do 250 houses? Like, how the hell am I going to find that? Yeah. So I'm like, oh, well, simple. I'm just going to start my own turnkey, I'm a, my own wholesaling company, and I'll go find the deals myself. So I hired both my roommates, taught them what wholesaling is. Um, one of them is an engineer, and so he's been like coding the entire thing, and we're texting, cold calling. Wow. I already know what the homes are worth. So we're texting these homeowners and trying to find these off-market deals. Mm-hmm. We get the deals under contract, send them to Martel Turnkey. If Martel Turnkey doesn't buy it for whatever reason, it could be as simple as like wrong side of the street. Then uh, we send it off to our list and pool of other investors. And yeah, they've been those guys have been killing it as well. And that's just starting in January. So uh, yeah, it's been a good year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know for all the stuff that's gone on. Yeah. I know a good year and. In a bad year at the same time. I know, right? Yeah. One of the final things I want to touch on is taxes, for sure, because, come on, taxes? Anybody? Anybody know anything <laughs> about taxes? What's the main benefits and advantages of um, purchasing a real estate investment property? Because the only thing I do know is you can deduct the interest. Yep. And But I feel like there's probably more to that. Yeah, the interest. So... Pretty much, our, we've done the math a bunch of times on our turnkey rentals, and pretty much the cash flow you're making is pretty much like tax-free cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, after you take in the interest expense, the property management fees, um, all those kinds of things that you're able to legally write off, and your CPA can tell you more about that, um, then it's pretty much a net wash. Um, so, because you only need to cover a couple hundred bucks a month. Again, these are smaller properties, so you don't need to cover like five grand a month in cash flow and try to like get away with it. These properties are you know small properties with high mortgages, which means high uh, interest expense that you're able to write off. Then depreciation too of the asset. Um, so yeah, most of our turnkey rentals that we sell are uh, are pretty much tax. If you if you have the right CPA and you're doing things the right way then uh, they're pretty much a uh, tax-free cash flow at the end of the day. Um, other benefits of, of that is um, we, like it gets even 
wilder. Like with some of the apartment buildings we've done, there's this thing called uh, accelerated depreciation, where when mm-hmm. you buy a, a buy a building, you get to be like, oh, the all the appliances and the kitchen cabinets and like the bathroom, everything in the bathroom and all the stuff within the walls of the unit of the apartment, those are accelerated at seven and a half years, I believe, instead of 29 and a half. And so we've like paid these people that go and do these like surveys of our properties and they've been able to like, I think we pay them like 10 or 20,000 bucks, but then they go and save us. Like we got a tax write off. I don't even know what it's called, but tax break or write off of like $400,000 for some of these properties that we've bought. Yeah. It's, it's pretty insane. Um, what you can do once you get into like the bigger, the bigger stuff, uh, with the apartment buildings, it's called accelerated depreciation. Wow. That's, that is wild. I'm thank you for giving me that information. (laughs) Wow. That is, that is a wealth of knowledge. I don't know if I would have been able to scope out. Yeah. It's crazy. Antoine, we're down to the final question. It's been great. You made it to the end. (laughs) We did it. All right. So, in regards to financial freedom, I mean, it sounds like it has been an incredible, crazy, wild turn of events filled with lots of hard work and intention. Um, how has rental properties and you building this business up created financial freedom for you? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is that it's created financial freedom for my parents, right? So, they both were used to work nine to fives. My mom just quit in January of 2020. She was working at a hotel. And uh, I was like, I went to her, I think it was over Christmas or something. I'm like, she was always complaining about work. Oh, because she had to work during like the holidays, right? Because of course, hotels are slammed during the holidays. And she's like, I can't even spend time with you. And then I was like, okay, just quit then. Like, why are you complaining? Just quit the job and come sell houses at Martel Turnkey. So she accepted the offer, quit her job. Then my parents moved from San Francisco down to L.A., they're down here in West LA now living nice. by the beach. And so that's probably the biggest like success uh, with passive income uh, that, w- that I can say because I've, I'm so young. I haven't really taken, I've just been inve- kept on investing my money back in the business and stuff like that. I haven't really taken anything out. So I haven't reaped the benefits of it cause I'm too young, but uh, that's the best uh, thing that I can say for right now. Man, I love that. Antoine, where can we find you on the internet? So the best place to reach out to me is on Instagram at Martel Turnkey. Oh, at MartelAntoine.com. Uh, don't go to Martel Turnkey. There's nothing there. Um, at MartelAntoine.com. Post content there every day-ish. Um, and I have my own podcast, my book. All the links are like in my Instagram. And then if you're interested in turnkey rentals, you can go to martelturnkey.com, book a phone call with us. Um, and yeah, I think those are the two good places. Sweet. I'll throw everything in the show notes. And I will cool. say, please listen to the podcast, his Antoine's podcast, because it's great. <laughs> like, Thank I'm, you. I'm not even joking. Like, I was listening to the podcast to do research on you, and then I just kept listening because I was like, oh, man, this is really good. This is really good information. Yeah, the first, like, 20 shows were me, like, sitting in my old apartment, like, just, like, reciting stuff. And so those are probably the best because they're, like, quick and concise and stuff like that. So, but, yeah, I need to need to do more podcasts. But, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for the compliment. You got it. I'll be ready for your comeback season for podcasts. <laughs> Okay, bye. See ya. Goodbye. Bye. That was the podcast. I'm the intern and still in a hurricane. Please send your recovery efforts now. Uploads every Friday at 6 a.m. The real reason you're still here, why is Europe like a frying pan? Because it has grease at the bottom. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. And go out there and get some today. We'll see you next week.